Would you all pray with me this morning? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord God, fully aware of your glory. God, we come before you now asking that you would inhabit and be in and be with this moment, with these moments. God, I pray that you would bless your word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this place. God, I pray that we would have a better understanding of what it means to be children of God living in difficult times. Bless our time now together for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can go ahead and open them to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. A couple of months ago, I uh, had a knock on my door, and it was a cable service provider. And he was with a different company than the cable service that I currently, that I had at the time. And he started to tell me, hey, you know, what kind of service do you have with your cable company? Do you, are you, are you happy with it? Uh, it? And I started to tell him who I had and what, what we were paying and all this kind of thing. And he says, you know what? I think, I think I can get you a better deal. And I said, really? So he started to kind of unpack this for me. And as I listened to him, I said, you know what? You, you might be able to get me a better deal. I think there might be some benefit here to this deal, this switching from the cable provider that I have this morning, or that I had at the time. But this morning, I'm not here to talk to you about cable provider services. What I am here to tell you this morning is that when there is a better deal available, it would be foolish not to accept it. And in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews wanted his audience to know that there was indeed a better deal available. To put it in more theological terms, there was a better covenant available. And this new covenant was better because every facet of it was superior to the old covenant. The new covenant has a better mediator, Jesus. A better sacrifice offered, that would be Jesus. A better high priest, Jesus again. Better promises and a better resurrection. You know, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, when, maybe, when, when the prophets would raise somebody back from the dead, they still came back to mortal bodies. But the resurrection that we have because of this new covenant, we are raised with glorified bodies. That is because of the work of Jesus Christ in this new deal, this new covenant that we have. It is better. In short, the new covenant is completely superior to the old covenant because the new covenant is completely centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why it is better. But the problem that the congregation that we read about in Hebrews was having was that they had grown accustomed to the old covenant, namely the familiar rituals and practices of Judaism. And the ones who had made a profession of faith in Christ, they were, they were now teetering and toying with the idea of maybe walking away from that profession because of the intense persecution 
they were experiencing. And make no mistake, they were experiencing intense persecution from the Judaizers of that time. They were being thrown out of synagogues. They were being mocked and ridiculed. They were even put in prison, as Hebrews 10, 32 through 34 tells us. They were going through persecution, and it was difficult. And yet still, some were becoming less focused on Christian teaching. They had become, as Hebrews 5.11 tells us, dull of hearing. And evidently, some stopped meeting together for worship, as evidenced by the author's admonishment when he says, forsake not the gathering together of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing. This was happening. People had stopped coming to church, essentially. The difficult trials of life as a Christian was causing this predominantly Jewish congregation to second guess and walk away from the reality of who Christ was, to walk away from Christ. It was as if they were saying, you know, we don't know if this this Christian thing, this Christian faith is, is really worth it. And I think sometimes we can identify with that. We, sometimes we think that as well when we look at the difficulties that we undergo and we think, you know, I don't know. Something seems up here. I don't know if this is really all it's cracked up to be. This is how they were feeling, these Jewish uh, Christians. He wrote, though, in this time, this is exactly why the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this epistle to his congregation. He wrote to exhort them not to leave the faith and to admonish them of the consequences of doing so, what that would mean. This is why we have these warning passages, as we call them, interspersed throughout the book of Hebrews. We see it in 2.1, in 4.1, in 10.25, and in other places in this book of not falling short of, not finishing. By his own admission, the writer of Hebrews calls his letter a word of exhortation in Hebrews 13, 22. And exhortation just means encouragement. He wanted to encourage his readers to persevere in faith and not to let the persecutions they were experiencing cause them to walk away from Christ, to give up. He also wanted them to know that because Christ was and is superior in every way to the Old Covenant, Following him was absolutely worth all of the trials and sufferings that they were facing. But he also wanted these hearers, his congregation, to know that they should not trade the richness and certainty of their eternal inheritance for the temporal satisfaction of the here and now. And you know, this morning, you may be at the point of giving up on God and walking away from Christ. Maybe the waves of difficulty in this life just keep hitting you wave after wave and you've grown tired and weary in your Christian life. Or maybe you're here and you've become just a a little bit flabby in your spiritual walk. You believe the gospel, but you've become somewhat inattentive to its importance in your life. Well, in either case, the message this morning is this. Don't give up. Tighten up. If you have your Bibles, look at Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 together. The Bible says this. Therefore, 
Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. It's the word of God. This morning, my, my proposition is simple. It is this. Because God is faithful in keeping his promises, we must live the Christian life with perseverance. Because God is faithful in keeping his promises, we must live the Christian life with perseverance. And you know, the writer of Hebrews, he is exhorting his readers to take action in these verses that I just read. And he is doing so in light of everything he has just laid out in the previous verses. Our text this morning begins with the word, therefore. Wherefore the therefore? Find out what the therefore is. Therefore. This is a linking word, pointing us back to the previous verses. The author is calling his hearers to action based on what he's just communicated. And what is it that this author has just communicated? Four things. Number one. The Christian life is a race. The Christian life is a race. In light of the examples of faith given in chapter 11, we are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. He is exhorting them to, to, to look at this Christian life as a race, and as such to run that race with endurance. The second thing is he's communicating the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focus of the Christian life. He is the goal of the race and the leader who we are called to follow. This is why we are to keep looking to Jesus, or as the New American Standard says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And again, that word fixing is very important. Looking, it's very important. It is to look to Jesus undistractedly, intentionally, so that I'm actually turning away from what I was looking at to Jesus. I'm making an effort to look at him, to fix, his, fix our eyes on him. And so Jesus, his enduring and suffering serves as an encouragement and example to us when we suffer. That's why we must consider him. In Hebrews 12, 3, the writer of Hebrews says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So he's, he's unlaying this. The third thing he lays out is the discipline of the Father. The discipline of the Father. This discipline is not punitive or wrathful, but actually serves as a mark of sonship and as an affirmation of the Father's love for us. We are not to see the suffering and persecutions that we face in this world as a sign of God's hatred of us, but rather as his divine discipline, which is actually for our good. It is for our good. And here's the real point. So that we may share 
his holiness. God uses the circumstances that we go through, the persecutions, as his divine uh, corrective hand in our life to shape and conform us to the image of Christ. In verse 10, he says this. He says, for they disciplined us, talking about earthly parents, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. This is the goal. I love how A.W. Pink puts it. He says it this way, quote, the Lord or the rod is wielded not in wrath, but in tender solicitude and is a manifestation not of God's anger, but of his love. Of his love. God is our father. This is what the writer of Hebrews is communicating to his congregation, to his hearers. This is what he wants them to understand. This Christian life is a race. You have somebody who ran it before you and endured suffering from sinful people. And yet he endured. Fix your eyes on him. Look at him. Consider him. But also, you have a heavenly father who is not disciplining you vindictively. But he is disciplining you for your good to shape you so that you share his holiness. But the fourth thing the writer of Hebrews communicates is the result of that discipline. In verse 11, it says, to those who have been trained by this discipline, the discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, so in light of all of that, therefore. My second, my first proposition this morning, first point, because God is faithful in keeping his promises, we must persevere in our stamina for the race. So we know we need to live the life with the Christian life with perseverance, and the way we do that, persevere in our stamina for the race. So that therefore, he says this in verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Again, this is that uh, athletic imagery that he pointed to in 12.1, right? This is the race that you run with endurance. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The writer here is taking this exhortation from Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 4. I want to read it to you. In Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 4, this is where he gets this exhortation from that he's giving to his hearers. And he says this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You know, the thought I had is that whenever you see the word will next to God's name, that's a promise. That's going to happen. And the Bible here says God will come. He will save you. In light of that, be strong. Fear not. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He will come and save you. The writer of Hebrews was writing to an audience who had been familiar, who would have been familiar with this passage. These are predominantly Jewish people. They would have understood. They would have known the reference. And his word here is one of encouragement. And this language of drooping hands and, and weak knees was an idiomatic expression for exhaustion. Idiomatic just means the natural flow of how they spoke. It's like if I send a text to my wife uh, Maggie of Liam fast asleep and I say, he's knocked out. 
She doesn't text me back and say, who punched him? No. She, I understand what that means. He's, 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 he's knocked out. He's fast asleep. So I, I, and you laugh because you understand what that means. The Hebrew writers, the, the Hebrew hearers would have understood drooping hands and, and weak knees. They would have understood what that meant. It is sheer exhaustion. It is idiomatic of exhaustion, low spirits, discouragement, and despair. This expression refers to people who have become exhausted. Donald Guthrie, theologian, he, in commentating on these words, he says this, quote, they portray persons who have become incapable of action through sheer exhaustion, end quote. And I think if we're Church, if we're being honest this morning, there have probably been times when we've felt that same way in our Christian life. Times where we felt the exhaustion that comes from dealing with, with difficulty, with persecution, a difficult family member, uh, struggling with our own sin. I think we can identify with this exhaustion. But it is in these times when we need to remember the faithfulness of God and persevere in this race of faith. It is in those times that we need to go back and remember the promises of God. God will save you. That's what the writer uh, Isaiah says in this text, and it's what the writer of Hebrews draws from to exhort his people to encourage his people, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Get up and run. It's like he's saying, be strong and run straight. Get out there and let's get it. I don't think he said it that way, but <laughs> that's the point. That's what he's encouraging his hearers. Jesus suffered immeasurably more than we could ever imagine. And he endured. He did not give up. He did not tap out. He did not throw in the towel, but accomplished all that the Father set out for him to do. Uh, Jesus said in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth. That is speaking to his Father in the high priestly prayer. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And as his followers... We need to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and persevere in the work that Christ has called us to do, which is to be salt and light in this fallen and dark world, to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. We are called to live out a life of holiness, to be different. It's hard to run a race when your hands are low. The one thing that my track coach used to say was, drive your arms, keep your arms up. It's hard to fight when your arms are drooping. It's hard to run when you have weak knees. But secondly, the second thing I want us to see this morning is that because God is faithful in keeping his promises, we must persevere in our support of one another. We must persevere in our support of one another. I want you to notice the relational component to our text this morning. In verse 13, it says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let me unpack that. Make straight paths refers to the manner of our living. 
Again, Donald Guthrie, he points out, quote, it is no use the weak knees being strengthened to walk on devious paths. It's no use to strengthen the knees and then go live a, a, a life of sin, to walk on unscrupulous pathways. We are to live in righteousness as we run the race of faith. How do we do this? Well, the writer tells us in verse 1 of the chapter, of chapter 12, we do it by laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Making a straight path means clearing away the impediments that inhibit us from running effectively. And it means mortifying sin in our lives, whatever they may be. Why? Why do we do that? So that what is lame may not be put out of joint. And this is the relational component to the text. The church is a body of Christ. It is the body of Christ. And oftentimes within the body there are believers who are weak in their faith. But you, you'll recall if you've ever done air travel, you get on the airplane and the flight attendant comes out and she points up and said, you know, there are oxygen masks above you, right, in the event of some kind of turbulence or something, the pressure drops and the oxygen mask drop down. Make sure you secure your oxygen mask, mask so that, you know, you can, and then you can help the person who is struggling with it. That's the idea here. We have to make sure that our oxygen mask is on, that we're, that we're running straight, that we're living righteously so that we can now help others to do that. That's the, that's the, that's the import here. The term lame refers to those who are weak in their faith, to those who are struggling as they run this race. The Christians who are stronger in their faith need to live in such a way that sets the example for those who are weaker. I mean, think about it. Think about the people in your life, right, who really modeled for you what it meant to be a follower of Christ, who modeled that out for you. How powerful was the testimony of their life to you, maybe in a time when you weren't running the way you should, walking in Christ the way you should, and there's this person who is blazing a, a straight path for you. And don't get, don't misunderstand. We don't worship men. We don't follow men. But Paul did say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so the objective here is when you see somebody who is living that out, a, a, a brother or sister who is more mature in their faith, and you're watching that and you're seeing that, how, how, how helpful, how powerful is that? Maybe going through difficulty in the college classroom, people assaulting your faith, and yet there's somebody who you can go to who understands the, mentally and, and apologetically how to, how to defend your faith, and that bolsters you. You know, it's funny. I like playing golf. Um, not very good at it, but I enjoy playing. And I, I, I wasn't always uh, good at, at, at the game. And I would go out there and I would hit you know, try to hit balls, and I would I hit it wrong. I hit, the, I hit it the wrong way. It would shank this way in the lake. It, a lot of balls going in the lake, you know, um, missed putts, all kinds of things. But I would go out there with my dad, and he was there watching me and saying, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, do this. Change it this way. Keep, keep your head down, because all I want to do is I want to see where the ball's going. He's like, no, 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 don't do that. He's watching me. And he's giving me pointers on how to, you know, play this game, 
right? And then I, when I would get upset and frustrated, all right, all right, calm down, relax, let's, let's, let's try it again. He was encouraging me. And then I would watch him the way he would set up to hit the ball. And this is when we were playing frequently. And, and I said, oh, okay, wow, that's how you do it. Okay, that's interesting. And in watching him, it sort of helped inform how I played. Okay, well, I need to try and copy what he's doing. Now, church, our Christian life isn't as trivial as a golf game. But there are people in our life that have helped us because of the straight paths that they have blazed, the straight paths that, we're make, that they were making. And this is the call, this is the exhortation that the writer of Hebrews is telling his church. Make straight paths. What a blessing it is to have such people in our lives that we can look to when, we are, when, when we're not where we need to be in our faith. The goal of making straight paths is others. We live our lives in such a way that those who are watching us gain a renewed courage and strength to persevere and not fall behind. And that's the problem. Some of them are like, ah, we're not going to church. Forsake the meeting. Some of them are becoming dull of hearing. They, they didn't even, I mean, the writer says, listen, that by this time you guys should be teachers and you still got to be taught. These elementary principles, they just didn't care. They were getting so uh, frustrated with the persecution that they were experiencing that it was just like, you know what, I'm done with this. <laughs> Forget it. And I think we see that happening a lot, especially amongst our, the, the millennials now, where a lot of them, I think I forget what the percentage was, it's 70% of them are walking away from their faith. They're saying, you know what, I, this Christianity is not for me. And a lot of it ties to people who they, they would have real legitimate questions about the Christian faith. And they weren't getting real answers. There weren't straight paths that they could follow. And so they said, I'm done with it. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't believe that you can lose your salvation. You know, I believe once saved, always saved. But we, I think a lot of times we focus so much on the always saved and forget to focus on the once saved. Let's make sure that that was actually true, that there was actual conversion there, right? But we can't lose our faith. We're secure. The scripture tells us that. But we need to make sure that we are making straight paths for others who are watching us because there's always somebody watching us. There's always somebody looking at your life. Are you making a straight path so that they can walk behind you? He says here, may not be put out of joint. A straight path is a blessing to those who are weak or have become discouraged in their faith. The goal of the straight path is to keep the lame believer from further injuring himself. The phrase put out of joint has somewhat of a, it's like a medical meaning, and it means to be dislocated, right? But it also carries the idea of turning away, of turning away. And it can also mean to direct one's interests, attention, or trust away from something to something else. And the danger here is that a weak, lame member of the church community would turn away from following Christ because of the hardships that they faced in persecution. This is what the writer of Hebrews wanted to safeguard against. So he exhorts his readers to make straight paths so that what is lame, the weaker Christian, may not be put out of joint. In other words, so that the already weak or indifferent members of the church would not slide further from the faith and eventually end up apostatizing from the faith altogether. 
Remember, the verse ends with the goal of straight paths. What is that goal? Be healed, right? He says in verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is put so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Healing is the goal here. It's not to let them slide further and further and further back. It's that we, we make these paths so they can walk in it, so that they have that example so that they can be healed. That's the goal. It's others directed there. There's a relational component to this. We need to be about the business of helping one another walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, as it says in Ephesians 4.1. We are in this race together, and as such, we must support one another as we run the race that is set before us. So because God is faithful in keeping his promises, we must persevere in supporting one another. You know, the question gets asked, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. There's no individual Lone Ranger Christianity. That's what the devil is looking for. He's looking for that weak brother that's kind of, you know what, I'm done with this thing. Let me swoop on in here, right? You think about what Jesus says about the, the different pathways and, uh, that the seed falls on. Some seed falls on, on path that's rocky and the cares of the world choke it out and they, and they fall away. Oh, but we're, we want to safeguard against that. We want to hold each other accountable. We want to love one another, and we want to uh, steward one another and shepherd one another, disciple one another, especially those that are stronger in their faith. That's the goal here. So how do we do it? Verse 14. Verse 14 tells us, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Right? Verse 11 of chapter 12 tells us that the result of God's divine discipline is that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So now, in verse 14, the writer of Hebrews is exhorting his hearers to strive for peace with everyone. And the verb strive, it means to go after something with, in, with the intent of catching it. It means to pursue, to do with effort. It's actually the same word used of Paul in Philippians 3.6 when he said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. The same tenacious zeal that Paul had when he was in pursuit of the church is the same way in which we must pursue peace with everyone. That is the goal. We, we, we must pursue peace. He says, strive for peace with everyone. And in the context of our passage, there was the possibility that some differences of opinion existed within this first century congregation. The theologian Raymond Brown observes, quote, possibly this church's recent trouble with their Jewish persecutors had led to sharp differences of opinion within the congregation itself. For example, does a Jewish Christian have any spiritual responsibility to obey the cultic requirements of the old covenant? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saved, but I'm a Jew. Do I still have any sort of responsibility to do what the law of Moses says. These were sharp disagreements that were emerging within the church. These kind of issues had the potential to cause real disharmony within the church. So the writer here says, strive for peace. But you know, church, the point also has to be made that peace is not always possible to achieve. It's not always possible to achieve. And while this is certainly true, 
it doesn't nullify or cancel our responsibility to strive for it. We're still called to strive for it. We may not always get it. There may not be peace, but we still are called to strive for that peace. Paul has the same idea here in uh, Romans 12, 18, when he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In that text, Paul says, if possible, right, if possible, which gives the indication that it may not always be possible to live with peace among everybody. But he also says, so far as it depends on you, meaning if living with peace is dependent on you, do so. If you're able to live in peace, you need to do it. I mean, church, after all, peacefulness is one of the characteristics of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is also the fruit of the Spirit. Colossians Chapter 3, verse 15 tells us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Psalm 34, 14 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. We need to strive for peace with everyone, but especially with those who are part of the family of God. This is how we support one another. But I have one caveat. Just, just one caveat, we should never seek peace at the expense of principle. We should never seek peace at the expense of principle. In other words, we should never have a go-along-to-get-along attitude with, 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 when it comes to getting this peace. Well, okay, you want to move out and, and, and live with your boyfriend? Okay, just for a peaceful life. Okay, go ahead. No! We never seek peace at the expense of principle and at the expense of conviction. If it's sin, it is sin. We need to deal with it. If there is sin in either of these relationships, whether it's with the world or with those who are saved, we must never seek to excuse sin in order to have peace. We don't do that. We are called to live in peace as much as it is possible within us, but we are also called to, as he'll say in the very next text, holiness. He says, strive for peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The writer also notes that his hearing, first, why would he say that? Why would he say strive for peace and holiness? Because peace is the environment through which holiness flourishes. Peace is the environment through which holiness flourishes. You go home to your wife, you go at your job or wherever, and you're striving for peace. Holiness can begin to flourish there, right? If you go home and there is this contention between you and your wife, how, how are you going to have holiness now? How, how, do you, how do you exhibit and exemplify holiness? We are not just called to peace. We are called also to holiness. We are to strive for it without which no one will see the Lord. It must be made clear, church, that this holiness we are to strive for is not some kind of legalistic uh, enterprise where we can earn our salvation from God because we live, our holy, we, we live holy lives. God, look at how good I'm living. Look, look at this, God. Okay, give me my salvation. You can give it to me now, right? I'm, I'm working so hard to live holy, God. You owe me this. No. How do I know that this is not that? Because 
we know, as Hebrews 10.14 tells us, that Jesus once and for all perfected all those who are being sanctified. This is not an imputed holiness that, is taught, that, that, that the writer is talking about here. He's not talking about the holiness that we get when we are justified in Christ, right? Uh, Paul, when he addresses churches, he calls them saints. Saints are set apart ones. That is immediate. When you come to faith in Christ, you have been made holy. But that's not what he's talking about here. How do I know that? Because he says, strive. Strive. You can't strive for imputed holiness. That's given to you. Impute just means to apply. That's applied to you. That is automatic. When you come to faith in Christ, you're made holy. You're made righteous. This is talking about personal holiness. And just again, Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus once for all sanctified believers through the offering of his body. Hebrews 10.10. The holiness that the writer of Hebrews is referring to in our text this morning is personal holiness. Holy living is not optional, church. It's not optional. You know what? It's it's, it's not a suggestion, in other words. I think I'll live holy today. No, this is a characteristic of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Church, the holiness that the writer of Hebrews is referring to is personal. Holy living, it's not something that we can choose or say, you know what, it's not optional in other words. It's mandatory. Good trees bear good fruit. Making a claim to being a Christian that is not backed by the marks of a holy life, it invalidates the claim. God is holy, and as reflections of his glory, we are called to be holy as well. We are called to be holy as well. And this is important because Paul says, Paul says, listen, in Ephesians 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance. If this is what marks your lifestyle, you have no inheritance. And again, this this striving, it's not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And the markers of that reality is a holy life. That's what we're called to. And so Paul goes on to say, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul is basically saying, listen, don't get it twisted. People who live like the devil and then try to profess Christ are not going to be the recipients of God's reward but rather of his wrath. You can't say one thing with your words and then do something else with your life and then that be the thing that characterizes your profession. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. There is a difference. And we are to strive and and work to achieve and work to uh, live out 
the reality of what God does in justification. In justification, we're considered not guilty. Not guilty. In sanctification, God begins to make that true as we live it out. He makes it a reality and we live it out. In glorification, it's a reality. It's complete. It's been done. But our responsibility here in trying times, in difficult times, when people are attacking your faith, mocking you at the job, all these kind of things, we are to, number one, strive for peace. And we're to strive for holiness. In verse 15, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 29, 18, where there were people who were worshiping idols. They were, they were, they were turning away from God. And in that text in Deuteronomy, he says, listen, don't, don't, don't do that. He says, those people are turning away from me. They cause this bitter root, and that bitter root is contagious. In the verse here, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Springs up. What does he mean by grace? What, what, what grace is he speaking of? He is speaking about the benefit and the aid that comes to us through what Jesus did. He's speaking about the grace and help of God. That no one fails to reach this. That no one is, it fails to reach that final salvation. That no one drops out of the race. Again, Raymond Brown points out, if these Christians are to follow after holiness, then they must rely upon God's grace. It cannot be pursued in their own energy. You can't live this Christian life. That holiness that you're called to, yes, you're called to do it, but you don't do it in your own strength. You have to make yourself available to the grace of God. Don't, don't, don't be away from the grace of God. Put yourself under the means of grace. That's why it's so important that we meet together, that we're here that you're in the word of God, that you're amongst the people of God. You are putting yourself in the means of grace so that you don't begin to fall away. And that thing that was lame actually gets put out of joint now. And now you're thinking about, you know what, this Christian thing is a joke. No, that's not what we want. So here, the warning is to make sure you don't fall behind by not availing yourself of the grace of God, by not keeping up with the pace of the movement of that grace. And then in conclusion, he gives the example of this in Esau. Look at, look at the verse as we close. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was rejected. You know the story. Esau comes home famished from hunting, super hungry, and Jacob comes up and says, you know, here, I got, I got this bowl of stew. G -g -g Give it to me. I'm hungry. Let me get it. Give me your birthright. I'm dying. Come on. I want the birthright. Okay. And he, and he sells his birthright. He, he sells his birthright for a, a bowl of stew. Church, Esau was bartering off the eternal.
for the temporal. And we do that sometimes. We can sometimes look at this world and say, you know what? I don't know that the promises of God are real. I don't know if I can trust them. But I do know that what's in front of me right now looks a lot better than whatever this Christianity stuff y'all are talking about in the future, in the whatever, high in the, pie in the sky, by and by. This looks real right now. This looks like it will fulfill me. Esau was focused on immediate gratification instead of eternal glorification. He was focused on that, and we, we can't do that. We have to consider him, number one, understand that we're running this race, and understand that we have a better covenant and that this covenant gives us better promises. And it might not always seem like that when you're going through persecution, when you're going through times where people are assaulting you and saying mean things about you. And it might just seem like, you know what, it's so much easier to take that bowl of stew. It looks so much better. And in so doing, Esau, he sought repentance. The Bible says he sought it and, and he, couldn't, he couldn't obtain it. It was too late. All it means there is that he wanted Isaac to change his mind about this thing. Please, do you have anything from I got nothing. Your brother has received a blessing, and he will be blessed. That will happen. He wept. But the thing about Esau is he's not weeping over not repenting. He, he didn't have this repent. He's weeping because he didn't get the blessing. That's why he's upset. As we close today, we need to remember that there is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that is available for us. And that as we go through the difficulties of this life, we need to keep that in our gaze and not barter off and not trade off the inheritance that we have because of Christ for whatever temporary, transient thing this world has to offer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you for the fact that because you are a God who keeps his promises, we can trust you, God, and we can gain strength to lift our drooping hands and weak knees and to continue running this race of faith. God, those who are here, there may be some that haven't even entered the race and they don't know you. Lord Jesus, I pray now that the Holy Spirit would move in such a way that they would be convicted of their sin, Lord God. They would understand their sin and come to you, come to the cross to receive forgiveness of sin, Lord God. There are those who are here and they've become lax in their running. Father, encourage them through your word. Lord, there may be some here that are just thinking about giving it all up and walking away. Lord God, convict them. Help the body of Christ to come around them and alongside them and help them to see the glory of what this internal inheritance we have is. Give us strength, God, in these days, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.